0: The reading for the sermon today comes from the book of Acts, from chapter 2, beginning at verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the path of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being there for a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This, Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. Being therefore exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you are yourselves seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, we thank you for this Jesus, the crucified Christ and Lord. Open our eyes now that we may see glorious things in your word and be made ourselves more like the glorious Lord Jesus, that we may turn to him, that we may look to him, that we may be saved through him and renewed and given new spiritual life by the Spirit, whom he, the exalted King and Lord, has poured out among us. And we pray in his name. Amen. Amen. Please do take a seat. And uh, let me add my welcome once again to all of you, and especially those who are visiting us today. I've had the privilege already of talking with a couple of people who are here for the first time, or just in town, passing through. It's great to have you with us. We're so glad you made it. We we, uh, hope you have a wonderful time with us. And perhaps uh, if you're able to stick around afterwards, you will do. And we have some coffee in the fellowship hall and a chance for some Q&A and just some fellowship. So we'd love to get to know you a little better. I want to begin today by articulating the gospel that is the central heart of the Christian message as clearly and as simply as I possibly can. The gospel is God's announcement that the crucified Jesus is both Christ and Lord. Or, a bit more simply, the gospel is God's announcement that Jesus is Christ the Lord. I think I can do even better. How about four words? You can remember this, okay? Jesus, Christ... Is Lord. There we are. How about that? You're welcome. Jesus, with all that means, is both Christ, with all that means, and Lord, with all that means. That's as simple as I can make it. Now, obviously, that's not everything that needs to be said about the gospel. It's a little bit like those silhouette maps of the states of the Union. When my family and I were preparing to come over here, I thought I'd better get to know this country a bit better, so I looked up. You know, the kind of map of the US, try and figure out which end Texas is at and that kind of thing. And, uh, you know, when you look at those maps, you sort of see the silhouetted outlines of individual states. And I don't know whether I'm the only one who thought that Colorado and Wyoming look a bit boring. You know, it's a square. And, you know, Tennessee looks like a stack of books on one side. It's like kind of leaning over one direction. And I always thought Delaware looked like a kind of marmot, like this. I don't know. Is that, am I the only person who thinks that Texas, of course, just looks like Texas, and and, <laughs> now, and obviously those things—they're just like the outline, right? They're just the big picture. If you zoomed in on any more and any of those maps in more de- you would see more things there, except perhaps with Wyoming. But Hold oh, don't stop it. Really. But you see what I'm saying? So it's true that Texas is like that shape with a square bit at the top right. And and if you zoom in, you see more. But it's helpful, isn't it, sometimes to zoom out and see the big picture. Jesus Christ is Lord. So if we zoomed in a little bit, what would we discover? Because that was 2 minutes 57 seconds. I ain't done yet. We didn't even have a membership or a baptism. I've got like 10 minutes extra today. <laughs> so if we zoom in a little bit more on each of those words, Jesus Christ, Lord. Jesus, the man who was sent by God, from God, who was attested by him, by the miraculous signs that he did, was crucified according to God's purposes. Jesus of Nazareth is the crucified Galilean five foot ten carpenter's son who suffered in himself the punishment due to you and me for our sins. Jesus means the man who was crucified according to God's purposes. Jesus. Christ, what about Christ? Christ means anointed one, it's the Greek, it's a transliteration of the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. Christ and Messiah both mean the same thing, they both mean anointed He's the promised heir of the throne of David. In many contexts, Christ just means king, although priests and prophets were also anointed. And he's a resurrected king. So Christ means something like the anointed priest, prophet, and king who now sits on David's throne, who's alive after he was dead. And he rules forever as the king over all the nations. So Christ, Jesus Christ, was resurrected as the Davidic Christ. Jesus, Christ, what about Lord? Well, Lord connotes first the conqueror and judge of all evil. And then second, God himself, the one on whose name we must call if we are to be saved. Both of those ideas are captured by what we read when we read the word Lord in this passage and elsewhere in Scripture. So the Gospel declares that Jesus is enthroned as the divine Lord. So, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus, the crucified Nazarene carpenter's son, in whom God is revealed and who was crucified for our sins, that we might be reconciled to God, is both the exalted Davidic king of all the nations and the Lord, that is, judge, and saviour of anyone who will turn to him. That's the best I can do. Jesus Christ is Lord. And once you think about it, you know there's this kind of big fuss about kind of gospel-centred everything in some church circles, which I actually think is, if you get the gospel right, it's not a bad idea to be gospel-centred. It turns out the gospel is the best news in the world. Sometimes um, in some Bibles, the, the the word gospel is instead translated good news, which is a kind of etymological um way of translating the greek euangelion eu meaning good and angelos meaning announcement or one who makes an announcement it is the best news in the world just think what it means i it means that we are the objects of incalculable grace infinite love just think what it, to say that jesus christ is lord is to say that jesus that perfect man gave himself for my sins and your sins. That Galilean carpenter, who is the living God in human flesh, looks upon me and he looks upon you and he sees all our petty jealousies, he sees all our niggling resentments, all our unrepentant bitterness, all our culpable laziness, all our backbiting and our lusts and our anger and our impatience, He sees all our greed and all our emotional neglect of those who are close to us. He sees all our arrogant entitlement, all our victimhood. He sees all our blaming and complaining and our joyless ingratitude and every other filthy, loathsome sin. And he says, I'll take them. I know what those deserve. As Isaiah the prophet puts it, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Like That is just the best news in the world. If that's what it means to be gospel-centered, I'll take it. And now that Jesus sits enthroned, in heaven, at the right hand of the Father, majestic in his holiness, and he invites us to call on him. He says, listen, you you guys are still in a mess. You need to call on me to be saved. You need to bow before me as the king of all nations. You need to walk in humble and grateful and loving obedience to him as the Lord and judge of all wickedness. Do not make it the case that the first time you bow the knee to Jesus Christ is the day you see him face to face. Please get ahead of the curve on this one. Every knee will bow, willingly or unwillingly, before the Lord Jesus Christ. It'll be a very good idea to get ahead of that curve. And you say to me, oh, pastor, you... I've lived a long life, pastor. You don't." And you're in that kind of mixed-up place, halfway between this too much mess to sort out, and um, really, I, don't, I just don't think it's worth the bother. Just like the prodigal son, you know, it's never too late to come home what a providential gospel reading Pastor Shaw read to us. I tell you that this man, I tell you what, how much sin you've got, I hope you're not like this. Well, maybe you are. This man, the tax collector, the one who fleeced his own people, the one who sided with the enemy, the one who put kids out on the street so that he could have another vacation, Down by the sea. This man went home righteous before God because he humbled himself. Because that's what Jesus calls us to do. This crucified Jesus is the King and the Lord. And he says, Come to me, all who weary and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. (laughs) Like, we're the cause of the lack of rest. In our own lives and our own hearts. And he says, just come to me. Keep coming to me. So back to that summary of the gospel. I mean, we, we find hints of this all over the Bible. we could have gone to Romans 1, 1 to 4, we could have gone to 1 Timothy 2.8, we could have gone to Revelation 14, 6. The themes which are fleshed out in the Gospel as it's expounded in the New Testament are found all over from Genesis to Isaiah to Exodus to the Psalms, 2 Samuel. It's it's actually equivalent to Jesus' own summary of his ministry. Think in Matthew, in um, Mark 1, when uh, he summarizes, Mark, that is, summarizes the whole of Jesus' message by saying, Jesus began to preach, saying, the time has come, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. You see? So the gospel is the announcement that Jesus is the king. The time has come, and the kingdom is here. There was all this... Silly fuss in 20th century New Testament scholarship between scholars, with scholars who are saying that Paul's gospel and Jesus' kingdom were completely different messages. Oh, please. The the announcement of the gospel isn't the announcement, the king has come. It's the same thing. And one place where you find this message very clearly, of course, is in today's reading at the end of this sermon. This is the first Christian sermon in the sense that it's the first sermon that we have recorded. Being delivered after the gift of the Spirit in Acts chapter 2, the conclusion of the sermon, verse 36. If you've got your Bibles, open them up again. Come on, got work to do today. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Can you see? Jesus is both Lord and Christ. That's the summary. Now, uh, what I want to do, I mean, you, uh, just to recap, you know where we are in the book of Acts. Um, The disciples have been waiting in Jerusalem for the gift of the Spirit, 1, 4, and 5. Then They need that because they need the gift of the Spirit, chapter 1, verse 8, so they can go from Jerusalem through Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth to preach the gospel. And the gift of the Spirit is given to them at the beginning of chapter 2, promoting all kinds of confusion, verses 12 and 13, because there's people speaking in languages they have not learned, and fire on their heads, and wind, and all this kind of crazy stuff. And so everyone is watching, verse 12 we're all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And others said, well, they've just been drinking, obviously. And Peter basically stands up and explains what's going on. He says, no, they're not drunk. Don't be silly. Uh, what's happening is this is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, Joel chapter 2. Uh, they're not drunk. These signs were promised when the Spirit would come, verses 14 to 21. And then we go into the reading we had today, that the logical unfolding of Peter's sermon continues. Verses 22 to 32, Peter says, look, you know that Jesus whom you crucified? Well, Psalm 16 says something about him. He's been raised to new life. We've all seen that. His tomb is like empty. And nobody disagrees with that. And Psalm 16 says that the one who would be resurrected is the Christ, the king about whom David spoke. Verse 33, it's like, well, that's why you're seeing the gift of the spirit because having been raised to life and exalted to the right hand of the Father, he is pouring out that which you are now seeing and hearing. It's like a gift from Jesus. So verses 34 and 35, actually David says something else about him in Psalm 110, that he's the Lord. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And so what that means, verse 36, is this Jesus whom you crucified has been made both Lord and Christ. You see, it's a perfectly logical sermon. And what I want to do today is to dig a little bit deeper into that map of Delaware to see if there's anything there. That is to say... Yeah, you've, well, well done, you're with me, you're still awake. You said, Delaware? Yes, I mentioned Delaware. Because it's like looking more closely into the gospel. Jesus, Christ, Lord. Let's just take a few minutes on each of those and explore what this means and its implications for us. First, Jesus. In this sermon, Peter explains that Jesus was crucified in accordance with God's purposes. Verse 22, look with me. Men of Israel, hear these words. By the way, question coming up in a couple of minutes. Israel, hear. Where have you heard that before? Don't tell me. Question coming. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. In other words, it's like, please don't pretend you haven't heard of him. And please don't pretend that he didn't do all those things attributed to him. You know Nobody in the first century didn't believe in Jesus because they didn't see anything. It's obvious this guy has been attested by God as something out of this world, shall we say. You know what's going on. And the miracles and wonders and signs, the the mighty works and wonders and signs, that's technical theological vocabulary for things designed to show that God is doing something here. Pastor Shaw brought that out in um, this week's last week's podcast, um, talking about the, the significance of this passage and speaking in tongues. Go and listen to the podcast. It should be on YouTube as well soon. Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up, which is a technical term again, referring to somebody given over to death. Delivered up, but who is it who gave him over to death? Well, it's interesting. There are two answers to that. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed. Why did Jesus die? Well, because you crucified him. Which, when you think about it, was a really dumb thing to do with the Messiah. But actually, it was in accordance with God's purposes. This is, by the way, how the Bible sorts out the the deep philosophical theodicy question. Like, how can a good God handle the existence of evil? If God is good and God is all powerful and evil exists, why doesn't God do something about it? You know, it's like this is the big kind of philosophical, hardcore nugget at the center of atheism. If God was really there, wouldn't he do something about it? It's like, yes, he might. (laughs) He might just... What he might do is enter into the world himself and be the object of the worst act of evil that's ever been committed as the means of overcoming all that evil. And so bring his sovereign power and the reality of evil and his own perfect goodness and love into connection with one another. That's why the cross is the answer to the problem of evil. Like, duh, philosophers. you become Christians, be helpful. So God used this human rejection of his own son precisely to overcome the problem of evil that they'd caused. He gave himself as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Jesus was crucified in accordance with God's purposes. It's wonderful when you, you sometimes, if you're a pastor, you get the privilege of... of um, Talking to people who are just sort of seeing these things, the, the penny drop for the first time. I remember um, first sermon I preached. There was a no, second sermon I preached. There was a, there was a man who'd been coming to our church for in the evenings for a number of years, and well, probably a number of months actually. And he he'd talked to the pastor and so on. And I, and he said, you know, the pennies. I think I'm starting to understand. Like it's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. It's like yeah, it's pretty amazing. Just a detail here, it's worth mentioning, Uh, just zooming in on that map a little bit. Uh, You notice in verse 23, um, you crucified and killed. And some have pointed out the obvious that Peter does seem to be holding the whole community of those present responsible for the death of Jesus. And he's talking to a crowd of Jewish people, Jews from every nation under heaven actually. And so, for some people, this generates a puzzle. Well, like, how are they all responsible? You know, and, and actually, uh, this has lent fuel to the ugly fires of anti-Semitism over the years. Some people have wrongly concluded that this text supports the idea that the Jewish people are kind of permanently all guilty of the, causing the death of Jesus which is about as stupid as it sounds for three reasons. First, just look at the text, please. It's always a good thing to do. Yeah, Look at the, look at the text. What does it say? Um, this Jesus, you crucified and killed, how? By the hands of lawless men. Who are the men without the law? Of course, the Romans. The Jewish people didn't have the power to impose the sentence of crucifixion on anybody so they co-opted and manipulated the Roman authorities and it was the Romans and the Jewish leaders notice not all the Jewish people who collaborated in that treacherous act of judicial murder. Well notice the point then it's not that the Jewish leaders were so much worse than everybody else. The point is that they're absolutely the same as everybody else. The point that this text makes is not this community was so much more evil than everybody else. It's that everybody, Jews and Romans and everybody else, as communities were opposed to the Messiah. If if you're going to be an anti-Semite, you better be an anti-Roman as well. Second reason it is true that corporately the people of Israel did reject Jesus in this sense. So their leaders, the priests and the Sanhedrin and the elders and so on, they did refuse to acknowledge that their Messiah had come. And it is true that um, leaders make decisions on behalf of their people, like kings and priests and so on, make decisions on behalf of their people. There is such a thing as corporate solidarity in the Bible. But that corporate solidarity never extends to the point where it means that individual people, every single one of them, is held liable in every way for all of their leaders' actions. In fact, everywhere throughout the Bible, everywhere, you find a remnant of righteous people who are Jewish people, who are living in accordance with God's purposes. It makes no sense at all to talk about, even under the Old Testament uh, civil and cultic system. It doesn't make any sense at all to talk about the whole Jewish people because there were many Jewish people who acknowledged Jesus. In fact, um, the, to the extent that there is any guilt upon those leaders, that judgment has already fallen. That's what the destruction of the temple was. So we, we are now downstream of God's judgment against the leadership of the Jewish people with the result that that community today, although many, many people, and including Jewish friends that you and I may have, will be married to. yes, uh, that, then that community no longer has the same theological valence that it did as a community under the old covenant era, that, that The the era of Israelite specialness in relation to scriptural promises is over. Now we're all on the same level playing field. That is, the same low level playing field. Jews and Romans and Brits and even Texans all needing to come to Jesus the Messiah in the same way. Which is the whole point of most of the New Testament. The third point that's worth making, just before we finish battering this crazy, silly anti-Semitic idea is to look again at verse 22. And I mentioned there's a little quiz, pop quiz coming up here. Men of Israel, hear. Where have you seen that before? Israel. Hear, O Israel. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, etc., etc., etc. And you know that's, that's called the shema from the Hebrew verb to hear. It means shema means here. Hear. Here, O Israel. There's a fascinating change that takes place in the way that this is rendered here. In Deuteronomy 6.4, it's a singular verb, Here, The emphasis is therefore placed on the community of Israel as a whole, a singular community, Hero O Israel. In this context, verse 22, men of Israel, plural, not Israel. It literally says, men, Israelites, that's is what it says. And the verb here is plural. Thus emphasizing the critical point that like, this era of corporate solidarity of, among Israel as a community is actually crumbling, coming to an end. Now it's up to you. What are you going to do? 3,000 people gathered around the spirit-filled apostles. What are you going to do? And that's a question that echoes down to this day, isn't it? You may be not from a community that identifies itself as jewish but very likely you're from a community that doesn't really or in some cases you don't really think of yourself as christian going back how many generations some of you do some of you are blessed with christian parents and grandparents and so on and so forth but others it's like no, you know i'm an atheist and so is my granddad and my dad and my great-grandfather you know was well, yes okay great i mean that's the lord be praised for your parents and grandparents and what they've bequeathed to you but what are you going to do What are you going to do? And it will be as foolish to try and be a Christian but without really standing up as an individual. And that would be really foolish, by the way. To to, to think that I can sort of inherit my parents' faith and I never really need to think it through for myself. That would be really foolish. But it's as foolish to do that as it is to say, well, I don't need to make a decision. When you do. If you aren't a believer now. One of the privileges we have here is, and I mention this every time I preside at the Lord's table, it is always a privilege to have people among us who are, you know, you've not been baptized or you have and it was so long ago you can't remember what liquid they used. and But you're certainly not a Christian. It's like, it's lovely to have you here. We're really glad you're here. And I hope you trust in Jesus. Because you need to. And you can. Jesus. So Jesus Christ... Is Lord. We better do Christ and Lord a bit more quickly. Christ. Jesus was resurrected as the Davidic Christ. That is to say, the heir of the throne of David. God promised David that one of his descendants would sit on the throne forever. Wonder who that descendant is going to be. Maybe Solomon. Nope. And then the kingdom divides and peters out over two or three hundred years. Who is going to be the heir of David who will sit on David's throne? And inherit the promises of life forever as a ruler of not only the people of God, Old Covenant, Israel, but the whole world. The answer is Jesus is the Davidic Christ. Look at me at verse 24. This is the long bit in the middle with the quote from Psalm 16. I'll read through and just talk about a few details. God raised him up. Yeah, so much for you, killing him. There we are. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I love that. I, I, I decided not to spend the whole of the sermon just talking about verse 24b but let me tell you i was tempted death couldn't hold him what's that sermon by is it samuel lockridge i think that's the right name is this guy who's he's a preacher that you would not believe he's got this amazing sermon extract online is it it, so it's something lockridge i forget the man's name he's an older preacher and he's got just a series of things he says about jesus go and look it up on youtube if you must Um, use it for something useful Um, death couldn't hold him. Anyway. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you. This is David speaking in Psalm 16. You will not abandon my soul to Hades, the grave. You will not let your Holy One see corruption. You won't let me rot. You've made known to me the paths of life you will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's David speaking, which is complete nonsense. Well, no, it's not nonsense. It looks like nonsense, though, doesn't it? For the reason that Peter points out in the next verse. David is in this psalm saying, you're not going to abandon me to the grave, and my body isn't going to rot. And Peter points out what everybody's sort of scratching their head, thinking for a thousand years at this point. Like, brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David... Both died and was buried, and his tomb is here. Like, it's in Jerusalem. It's like 200 yards away down the road. And his body is still in there. His bones are still gathering dust. So what's David talking about? What what can David possibly have meant when he said, you wouldn't abandon me to the grave. You won't let my body see decay. And Peter cuts through 2,000 years of debates about the New Testament use of the Old Testament and says, look, being a prophet knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he'd set one of his descendants on the throne, it's as though he spoke in the name of that future descendant. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, obviously. David's like taking that uh, persona of his greater son who will live forever, 2 Samuel 7, on his own lips and he's saying, you won't abandon me, quote unquote, to the grave. You won't let my, quote-unquote, body see decay. And he's not talking about himself. He's talking about the Christ, whose name is Jesus. Verse 32. This Jesus, God raised up. And of that, we are all witnesses. This is absolutely fascinating to me. Because you know the one thing that Peter doesn't ever try to do, and none of the New Testament authors ever try to do this, is to try and persuade their hearers that Jesus rose from the dead. (laughs) Because everybody knows that Jesus rose from the dead. The New Testament, and especially the book of Acts, actually, is filled with debate about the significance of Jesus' bodily resurrection. It's uh, the first fruits of the resurrection of all people. It's the promise of new life for us. It's the uh, beginning of the new age. It's the end of the old covenant order. It means there's now a man on the throne of heaven and so on. All these things about the significance of the resurrection, which are all true, but never once did any of the New Testament authors bother to say, "Now I've got to prove to you all that the resurrection happened. How do I do that? Because everybody, it's like, we know, it's like his tomb isn't like David's tomb. His tomb's empty. And even the opponents of Jesus, the Sanhedrin and the chief priests who wanted to keep this Jesus thing hushed up and hope that his death would be the end of him, I mean, the best they could do is try and bribe the soldiers, Matthew 28, bribe the soldiers who guarded the tomb to say that the disciples have come and stolen the body. Which is why some people thought that in the first century. But, but no, that story is about as paper-thin as it sounds because these are Roman soldiers. They know what should have happened to them if they failed to guard the tomb of this troublemaker. And so they, you can bet they would have guarded it pretty well. Nobody was buying it. Everybody knew Everybody knew that Jesus was alive. The question is, what are you going to make of that? And what Peter says, what we should make of it is verse 33. He's raised, he's alive, he's now exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you are now seeing and hearing. Now this is, no, we're doing for time. Oh, we've got a bit of time. This is a little complex, but I want to take you into this because it's kind of, we can talk about it more in forum if you'd like to. Um, the point is that the king who has ascended to his throne would give gifts to his people. This, In, in the background of this is the ancient um, practice of kings and conquering generals returning to their city in triumph after defeating their enemy. And as they returned into their city, they would receive gifts from people. People would shower them with um, flowers and lay their garments down before them and put palm branches on the floor and their donkey can walk over them and so they're not riding a donkey. Only Jesus rode a donkey, a baby donkey. But they'd ride in on their battle horses and they'd get gifts from the people. And then they'd ascend to their throne and then they'd give gifts to people. They'd give, maybe a coin would be minted and everyone would get one or the important people would. They'd call a feast and everyone gets a holiday and we all have a big party. The, 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 the conqueror or the king would receive gifts and then give gifts. And this is actually reflected in Scripture. Psalm 68 talks about this. If you're interested, no need to turn back to it. But it talks about the Lord's Messiah. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men. And so that's, Psalm 68 is then a typological picture of the ascension of the Messiah. So he's receiving these gifts. Now what's fascinating is what the New Testament does with that. Psalm 68 is quoted in Ephesians 4 except it's the other way around. When you ascended on high, you led captives in your train and gave gifts to men. So why why the change? Why would you go from Old Testament receiving gifts from men, New Testament giving gifts to men? Well, it's obvious, because in the meantime, the king's been enthroned. Before he's enthroned, he receives the gift. After he's enthroned, he gives the gifts. You with me? And... And this is the moment when he gives the gift. So what happens? Jesus, so to speak, ascends to his Father's throne, receives from him the Holy Spirit, and pours out this that you are now seeing and hearing, which is why this guy is speaking in languages he's never heard, and there's fire everywhere and wind and all this kind of stuff going on that you think they're drunk. They're not drunk. It's what Joel prophesied. It's the gift of the Spirit that the Christ has poured out, which means that he's the king. Like, what you really... when I If I go back a 10 minutes or so and start talking again about how... What we need is our sins to be forgiven. That's true. We need Jesus to forgive us. But there's also a sense of moral obligation here. Jesus isn't sort of kneeling down, pleading to be let into the door of your heart. He's enthroned in heaven, and he says, I'm the king. You ought to bow before me. You ought to humble yourself before me. It's not like I'll do this when I'm older. It's like, now, please. Please if you don't mind it's what the man in the gospel reading rightly discerned wouldn't even look up to heaven have mercy on me a sinner no literally the sinner look at the Greek text you've realised yet so he's the crucified man he's the Davidic Christ thirdly briefly just finally Jesus is enthroned now as the divine Lord verse 34 we're almost at the end of this reading you see but um, Peter has got one more Old Testament quotation for us. This one is from Psalm 110, verse 34. For David didn't ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, and then he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the implication, of course, is that David here is talking about Christ. Christ. And it's more obvious in a sense here, even though the, the psalm is actually quite tricky. Because when you look at it, if, if you go back to Psalm 110, and you just read what we've got quoted here, it says, The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is the, 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 the special name for Israel's God, who is the creator of the whole world. Sometimes people say Yahweh, from the Hebrew letters. Yahweh is probably not how it should be set, by the way, but another time. Um, that God, the creator of all things, says to my Lord, this is David speaking, the creator of the universe talks to somebody greater than me, my Lord, and says, you who are greater than me should sit at my right hand. See what's happening? It's so slightly confusing. Let me try one more time. God the Father, or the triune Yahweh, Says to somebody who is greater than David, you, the one who's greater than David, get to be enthroned. And so Jesus makes uh, a point about this in his own teaching. He says, like, this, oh, I won't, no, that will make it more complicated. Let me stop. Just unwind now. Forget you heard me say that. Go and look it up yourself. But the point is that somebody greater than David is sitting enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. I wonder who that might be. Well, we know who it might be because this sermon is all about Jesus. And what it means is, it's not just that he's seated at the right hand of the Father. Here, the same word is used to describe him. There is clearly a distinction between God the Son and God the Father. But here, the the word Lord is used to describe both. It's as though in Jesus we encounter the personal presence of the, L-O-R-D, capitals, Lord. Which answers our one final question that we didn't get answered at the end of last week, and I don't know whether I even raised it. Because at the end of that quotation from, um, from Joel, and it shall come to pass on that day that everyone calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, who's that Lord? And our assumption is going to be, isn't it, that, um, well, that's the Lord of whom Joel spoke. L-O-R-D, capitals, Yahweh, if you like, the, the God of Israel and the creator of the world, yes. But here, Peter's point is, God has made him, Jesus, Lord. Not, not, not adoptionism, ask me in forum. Yeah, definitely ask me in forum. But rather, God the Father has established and declared Jesus to be what he is by nature, the creator of the universe in human flesh, to whom we must bow if we are to be saved, and come to be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that is, Jesus, will be saved. And you look through the first few chapters of Acts again and again and again, it's always banging on about the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee must bow, Philippians 2. This Jesus, this guy, is the one who is the crucified saviour. He's the king on David's throne who not only invites but commands us to humble ourselves before him. He is the Lord and judge of all evil and the one who is the saviour of the world and says, Come to me. You've made this terrible mess of everything. Come to me. Let me save you from it. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we thank you for Jesus. Jesus the Christ and King. Jesus the Lord. Jesus the one in whom the triune God is manifest in the person of the Son. The one to whom we may come and must come to be saved. Some of these men and women sitting here have been Christians for longer than I've been alive. Some of them may not have realized before a few weeks ago that the Bible has two testaments. Wherever we are, whoever we are, we know we need Jesus and we thank you for him. And we pray in his name. Amen.